Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. Spring is nearly here, and many of our listeners will be getting out their gardening tools, their overalls, or shorts to again try their hands at raising their own vegetables. For most of us, gardening is an enjoyable hobby. And it certainly is a great thrill to see the results of your work come out of the ground right before your eyes. In other lands, many people will also be watching their spring planting grow. CARE, the cooperative for American remittances to Europe, proposes to help meet that need with their new vegetable seed package. It contains 28 varieties of vegetables. In order for families in Europe to start planting, you should order the CARE seed package right away. Total cost, with delivery guaranteed, is $4. Send your orders to Nonprofit CARE, 50 Broad Street, New York, and help a family help themselves. Welcome to episode 18 of Open Ears, Maine. It is Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. Another beautiful summer day. The birds are chirping. The dragonflies are flying. Revolution is in the air. I can smell it. Change is coming, my friends. It is. On today's show, our guest is Lakota Sanborn, a member of the Penobscot Nation, and an anti-racist and anti-fascist activist from Indian Island, Maine. We'll be discussing the anti-Trump protest in Bangor on Friday. Plus, we'll hear Lakota's perspective on Black Lives Matters, white allies, white supremacy, and the impact of colonialism on his tribe and other indigenous peoples. Coming up, Lakota Sanborn. I'm your host, Crash Berry. Do you listen to true crime podcasts? If so, please check out Devils and Dirtbags. That's my 13-part investigation of the child-molesting priests of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. The story starts and ends with the murder of a 13-year-old altar boy in the spring of 1972. The sole suspect is a parish priest. But there's more, much more. For instance, I tracked down a child molesting priest that I knew when I was a young man, and I got him drunk and secretly recorded his sordid confession to me about his sins and his dark family secrets. It's a sad, sad story that needed telling. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com to listen or download the show wherever you download, but only if you can handle the terrible truth about the Catholic Church and the priesthood. And now, the numbers. According to Maine's Center for Disease Control, there have been 2,606 cases connected to the coronavirus in Maine. The 100th Mainer, according to state officials, has died with COVID-19. And to date, almost 2,000 residents have recovered from the illness. And Governor Janet Mills has announced a relaxation 
in the restrictions and quarantine rules for residents from nearby states that want to visit Maine who can prove they've had a negative COVID-19 test within the previous 72 hours. Ironically, that's the very same guideline suggested during Episode 16 of Open Ears, Maine, when Captain Noah Barnes of the schooner Stephen Tabor suggested the very same option as a way the Maine Windjammer fleet could salvage their summer trade. One more thing before our interview. I wanted to thank someone I'm going to call DK for OPSEC reasons. Yesterday, he reached out with a tip and a link to a Reddit conversation about a sticker and flyer campaign in Portland's Old Port committed by a group of neo-Nazis over this last weekend. Luckily, the knuckleheads were dumb enough to brag about the stickering in their Telegram account. Telegram, for those of you who are lucky enough to be unaware of its existence, is basically an online, anonymous, quote-unquote, secure chat app. And it is often used by neo-Nazis to set up conversations and plan events with other haters. And so this group, who I'm not going to name right now, put up these stickers and flyers all around Portland's old port on street signs and talking about how Antifa and Black Lives Matter were invading Maine to wreak havoc and that white people would need to organize and protect their families from these terrorists, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so these idiots posted these photos of where they put the stickers on their Telegram page. So then I took those images and posted them on my social media and alerted my pals in Portland that these Nazis had visited their fair city by the sea and soiled it with their stickers. And I urged my Portland friends to quickly remove or cover or deface the stickers. Almost immediately, a whole bunch of people hit the streets looking for the posters and stickers, and soon the Nazi propaganda had disappeared. Other activists, I'm told, have bombarded the group's email accounts with mega, mega, mega spam. I don't know how you do that. And, sadly, we received many tips from experienced sticker destroyers that these Nazis often place razor blades under the sticker, in order, reportedly, to slice the finger of anyone trying to remove the sticker. So, instead of using your fingers, use a key to scrape away the sticker, or, better yet, cover the sticker with a positive message or a banned sticker. Thanks to all those who assisted in removing or covering up the filth left behind by the Nazi scum, and thanks to DK, for the heads up about the Nazi visit to Portland, if you've got a tip about scumbucket racist chuds, drop me a line at crash at crashberry.com, where you can find me on Facebook and Twitter or on Telegram. But there, I'm using an alias, which I can't share here because of OPSEC. Coming up, a conversation about institutional racism, Black Lives Matter, and the role of white allies with Lakota Sanborn. With our American servicemen in many countries around the world, they have a wonderful opportunity to observe new customs and traditions. 
what might have seemed strange before is becoming pretty familiar to them. For instance, among the Mohammedans, to drink coffee with anybody is regarded as a sacred rule of hospitality, a token of peace. The berries are roasted over a charcoal fire, and the coffee is allowed to boil three times. It's thickly sugared and served in very small cups. All this is traditional among the Mohammedans, but as our servicemen have observed, it's, well, it's simply their version of our mid-morning coffee break or our afternoon tea party or our cocktail hour. It's a time for friends to sit down and relax. It's a time for conversation with a cup of whatever beverage suits the individual taste. And this is true of customs and traditions of all countries. The way of doing things may be different, but the ideals are the same. So it is by observing these customs that our servicemen are helping to maintain goodwill with other people in other lands. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. Joining us now to discuss the protest against racism and Friday's presidential visit to Maine is Lakota Sanborn, a member of the Penobscot Nation and an anti-racist and an anti-fascist activist from Indian Island, Maine. Lakota, you were at the demonstrations in Bangor on Friday to greet Donald Trump during his brief visit to Maine. Could you describe what the scene was like? Thank you very much, Crash, for having me on. Um, so when we arrived there, it was about one o'clock. Um, a lot of people were still funneling in. Makeup of the crowd was a majority of white people. And the focus of the, the rally uh, event on Friday was shifted away from being something that was focused in regards to the Black Lives Matter movements across the nation and instead was directed to be more of an anti-Trump, more liberal event. And most of the speakers were white people. Uh, there were some people who spoke up in solidarity with the movements happening right now. There were many conversations had amongst the crowd and amongst the speakers. The makeup wasn't what I would have preferred it to be. And there's a lot of things behind the scenes that were happening in the lead up to Friday that was kind of just a clusterfuck. And I think that a lot, a lot of it needs to be digested and divulged in a way that makes sense uh, so that moving forward, Events like this are done with the, the directive and the consideration of black and indigenous and other people of color so that things that could result in, in harm or danger for those marginalized groups aren't facilitated just through the, the confusion and the lack of awareness or understanding by white allies who are in roles of organizing positions. Upon first arriving there, it wasn't great, but I knew what it was going into it, especially seeing the damage control that was being addressed through the Facebook posts by the people who were putting it on. So let's talk about this clusterfuck. Give me some details about that. But what did you witness and what did you think about the shift from the bulk of the protest being initially is going to be in Guilford, mm -hmm. then it was shifted over to Bangor. So if you talk mm -hmm. about those issues. Mm -hmm. So in describing the clusterfuck that took place on Friday, it needs to be understood kind of what happened behind the scenes and the dangers of white people trying to start movements are trying to start events and rallies around black-led uh, organizations and black-led movements. And so what happened was there was two white allies who took it upon themselves to create a Black Lives Matter event in solidarity. And they, they were very young and they were a little naive, and I don't blame them for that, in thinking that they could take on the, the reins of a massive event that would have well over a thousand people show up, I'm sure 
in Guilford, Maine. And, you know, it was an event in coordination with Donald Trump landing on Friday and flying to the medical facility in Guilford, as we know. And quickly it got out of those kids' hands and they realized how badly they had misstepped and that they as white allies uh, shouldn't be leading any kind of Black Lives Matter event. And, you know, that's a good thing that they came around on that. It was handed off to another person and quickly a coalition of different groups who are involved in the area as nonprofit organizations who are more uh, center or center left, depending on your views of them, uh, decided to step in and really take hold of this because they were worried about the safety concerns that marginalized people had been voicing, which I'm glad that they stepped in to a degree. I'm, I'm glad that they tried to do a shift in focus and damage control to help protect people because there was nothing in mind for the level of how badly things could have gone in Guilford, especially with seeing how the police response and National Guard response and the people that, that look out after Donald Trump, like their response to protesters in D.C. itself, like seeing how violent that is, there was, there was no preparatory aspect to how to mitigate those kind of responses. And so I'm glad that it got shifted to becoming solely a Bangor event, but at the same time, it falling into those hands and it shifting away from being a Black Lives Matter event and it shifting away from focusing on what's happening nationally and it shifting into instead just more of the the whole like orange man bad Donald Trump's a bad guy. Like we don't already know this. Like we, like we're on the first step and it's just, it's a shame to see that that was the response, that the, that there was no ability to shift this directly into the hands of black activists and indigenous activists and other people of color who could have done this in a better way. Even if it, if it was decided to bring it back to Bangor, it could have been done in a very different way and not risked the, police response and the border patrol showing up halfway through the event and the, the disastrous outcomes that could have happened, but were thankfully mitigated. Have you attended any of the Portland Black Lives Matter protests? Uh, yes, I have. I went to the one last Friday uh, after the Bangor event, and it was amazing the level of organization and uh, just the level of solidarity empower behind all of the speakers, all of the organizers, and, uh, you know, the people who showed up there in support. It was just incredible. They did such a great job putting it together. And I, I want that to be known, like the antithesis between what was a white-led fail, what I would deem a failure of an event on Friday in Bangor. The juxtaposition was palpable to see this is what the organizational power is of Black women and Black people in general. I want to own Something very important here is that I am not black. I am not an Afro-Indigenous person. I exhibit white passing privilege. I am complicit within white supremacy to that regard. I need to hold you and others accountable um, as to, I I don't believe you've had any uh, leaders from Black Lives Matter Portland or any other uh, black activists on about this issue, right? No, I haven't. Not yet. I've, I've intended to, but you're, you're definitely calling uh, me on it. And I believe the media too, the rest of the media, mm-hmm. because for the most part in Maine, we're all white people. And I promise you, I will have someone on very soon uh, from okay. Black that's, Lives Matter. That's good, because that's, that's very important that the people 
who are in charge of these moments nationally, in charge of these movements, like their voices need to be uplifted and heard. And I can only speak to my experience as an Indigenous person and my experience of how I've educated myself and what I have experienced firsthand. But like, it's, it's so important. It's so important to, to give this space right now um, and not talk over or down to uh, Black Lives Matter, to not talk over or down to black people, because there's still anti-blackness within any uh, people of color uh, communities. Like anti-blackness is very real and that needs to be understood. So I'm, I'm really thankful to you that you're going to um, take the time and the effort to get someone on that can speak more to these issues and probably in better, more eloquent ways than I can, honestly. Lakota, do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 25 years old. What would you say the age of other protesters and your comrades in the movement are? Are they older or younger than you? That's, that's really tough. I'd say that it's definitely intergenerational because I've met with people who have parents who marched with Martin Luther King. I have people who are old enough to have marched with Martin Luther King. Like This is intergenerational because this impacts everybody equally. I would say that this is definitely a movement that is led by people around my age, maybe a little older, who have experienced a lot of these things themselves. People who are around the same ages as those who are the victims of police brutality and anti-black uh, violence by police. And so this is literally every group. I've seen children at protests. I've seen grandparents at protests. It's, it's really a coalition of all age groups. And it's amazing to see that. This, obviously, isn't your first time protesting. You're a longtime social justice activist. Could you tell us a little bit about your background as an activist? Sure. So first getting involved with the understanding of the need for social justice, for racial justice, for environmental justice started when I was a kid. It's just knowing that we were unable to swim in the Penobscot River, you know, the river that was named after our, our people. Uh, because of all the toxic pollutants in the river that were dumped there from the paper mills, were dumped there by medical manufacturers, rendering the water poisonous. And so growing up on the islands and, you know, having these lessons taught to us by the elders and by the teachers that, you know, this was a deliberate act. This wasn't an accident. This was the direct causes of pollution. This was the direct causes of it wasn't described as much so back then, but it was the result of white supremacy and of environmental racism. Upon learning that at a very young age, just holding that and moving forward with it and allowing that fire to burn, it wasn't until, uh, it was would have been five and a half years ago now, joining different political campaigns, working in nonprofits, going to rallies and beginning to do community organizing, both within the community on on the res and also within um, greater Bangor area in coordination with Portland. I have worked with Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. I've worked with the League of Women Voters, Fair Vote Maine, and I was working on the Bernie Sanders campaign back in 2016. And in my own personal time, I have taken it as like my sole mission and goal to continue to further these things, whether or not that's paid compensation or whether or not that is providing me any kind of recognition or or monetary gain because it's much bigger than that and it should never activism should never be viewed as a way to further oneself it should be a way to bring about social change that's the thing that you get out of it 
you're fighting for a better future. And so that's the goal of furthering. It's not about how in this moment can I reduce my own suffering at the plight of others. Currently, I'm glad to see that more people are beginning to wake up and actually confront white supremacy and confront their culpability in the system that has extended back over the course of the last 500 plus years. I want to return to uh, what's going on now in a second, but I think it was very interesting that you brought up the term environmental racism, especially in Mm -hmm. conjunction to how your nation has basically their waterway poisoned by capitalism. I think that's Mm -hmm. a topic that isn't discussed enough in America. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can address other ways that you've seen that. When talking about environmental racism, it's something that I've heard people scoff or roll their eyes at, but it's very real. When you're thinking about the groups in the communities that are the most impacted by climate change, the groups in the communities that are the closest to toxic dumping sites, the communities that have pipelines built through their ancestral lands and waterways, those are communities of color. Those are black people. Those are indigenous people. Those are Latin communities. And it must be understood that this is not by some kind of mistake. This is by design. When viewing what happened with the Dakota Access Pipeline, they originally had set that pipeline to go through uh, a community in the north that was white majority. And then upon protests from community leaders, that was immediately just pushed through into um, indigenous territory. And this kind of thing happens all of the time. And it's not just within America. This is happening currently in Canada with the Wet'suwet'en people. Uh, The pipelines are pushing through with Coastal GasLink. um, And, you know, this this is something that has continued on for, like I said, the past 500 years. The goal of colonialism is to subjugate the people indigenous to these lands, people indigenous to any lands, and be able to dominate and control the direct resources of that area. And so the extraction process and the role of exploitation within the resource extraction is at the heart targeted by those who are the most protective of the earth, who are the most protective of their living space, which is indigenous peoples. It's the same thing that we see happening in Brazil with controlled fires getting out of control, of course, and destroying thousands of acres of of Amazon forest and territory of the indigenous peoples there. This is the same thing that's happening in Australia with the indigenous peoples there and the indigenous peoples in Japan. Like this is a global issue. And the people who are being the most taken advantage of, the people who are having these poisonous things put through their territory and put through their homelands are indigenous peoples. I think it's really key to understand that as we move forward towards climate change and seeing all of these horrible things happening with droughts, with mass floodings, with natural disasters, and especially topical now is with disease and disease spreading. That's another thing that has an environmental role. And the thing that needs to be kept in mind is that Indigenous peoples are among those the most impacted by not just natural disasters and, and not just by white supremacists taking control of our lands, but also by disease that is spread through environmental factors. Life right now just seems so depressing anyways. And to step back and take a big look globally at all these challenges that indigenous people are facing, it just seems almost overwhelming. Do you ever feel that way? 
Oh yeah, it's always overwhelming, and it, it's not. But it's nothing new. This is not something that is surprising. This is something that I was birthed into, and this is something that my kids and my grandkids will be birthed into. The fight has been continuous for the past 500 years since the first European boot heel in Columbus's armada uh, arrived in the Americas, and yeah, it can be overwhelming, and it's a never-ending battle, and especially through the environmental factor like you had brought up is just like there's there's such a shift in focus from a lot of people on the right towards eco-fascism and the idea that you know this malthusian idea that uh, overpopulation is the sole contributor to climate change and that covid is a good thing because like we're seeing the earth heal itself that we're experiencing proof that overpopulation and all of these things are the sole cause of climate change. And it needs to be known that the idea of overpopulation is one that is based in fascism. The people at the forefront fighting these battles have been indigenous peoples for as long as time has existed. The people at the front of these battles are those who are the most impacted. And this struggle will never be over until white supremacy has been eradicated until colonialism has been eradicated and until capitalism itself has been eradicated because we need to have a more socially designed, a more egalitarian society, one that is based more in tradition, indigenous traditions and governance than what we currently have. We need a system based on empathy and support and community-based action instead of individualism, instead of domination and control and authority by those who are guests in occupying stolen land. This fight is one that currently is boiling over, and a lot of people are waking up to it, but it's not a new one. I hear you on that, and right on. That's all I have to say. I'm curious why you think that people are now taking to the streets. Why now is everybody coming forward? Now is as good a time as any. With the Black Lives Matter movement, like seeing 2014, and what the response was by the Obama administration under democratic control, the response was next to nothing. There was an increase in police funding almost nationally. There was an increase in police shootings. And seeing that these things didn't change from Democrat to Republican, and it's just a continuation. I think over the course of the six years, people have continued to be angry. People have continued to see that nothing is changing. They have seen the continued defunding of schools, the defunding of public services such as healthcare. They have seen continued defunding of things that the communities need. And instead they have seen an increase in the budget for police departments and increased uh, militarization of said police departments. And so people over the course of the last six years, with COVID especially, like people are, people are angry about this as well. People are stuck at home. People are finally seeing that a lot of the pitfalls and the, the holes in capitalism are exposed. Finally, people are waking up to that and seeing, oh, well, if I can't pay my rent, if I literally can't go to work, why is it that I'm now going to be homeless? I can't afford to pay these things. Why is it that if I got COVID, like now things are waived. Now I can get healthcare for free, but why couldn't I before? Why couldn't I when I had cancer? People are seeing all of these flaws within our system that was built to keep a very small minority of people in this country uplifted above everyone else. And that coupled, yes, with more police shootings, I think 
is just, it's everything culminating in the way that it needs to. I think that if it didn't happen now, it would have happened tomorrow and we could have had the same discussion of why now. The fact of the matter is that it's happening now because it needs to. It's happening now because the rage and the disgust with how people of color in this country are, are treated and have been treated for the past 500 years is boiling over and people are no longer ready to just sit down and talk about these liberal ideas of, oh, we just need to reform, oh, we just need to do this or that without any actual direct action behind demilitarizing the police force. Let's go back to the demonstration Mm -hmm. in Bangor on Friday, and you mentioned that the cops and Border Patrol showed up. What happened? Yeah, so the rally was organized behind a fence, um, fenced an area across from the airport, I'm not sure exactly who led the march, but I'm pretty sure uh, from all the people that I've talked to that were on the ground that day with us that um, white allies took it upon themselves to begin a a walk to the rotary around the Bangor airport to block traffic. So this is like another layer to the, the issue with white allies functioning from this level of paternalism and taking control of movements is just very dangerous because people who don't understand the, the level of harassment, the level of danger when it comes to police uh, should not be leading events. And so when these white allies decided to break away from the white-led rally, they went to the Rotary, blocked traffic. The police department was there almost immediately. Then people kept flooding from the rally. It was basically like just watching everyone funnel out from the original event into the Rotary. And During this time, more and more police started showing up. I believe there was at least seven or eight squad cars there, the majority of the Bangor police force. And then the border patrol rolled up. I don't know if that's just because they were in close proximity to the airport or where they're they're stationed at, but there was like 10 border patrol cars and white allies were out of control immediately. Like the organizers behind it specifically didn't know what to do they were kind of flailing in that moment and there was no organization. They hadn't thought of ways to mitigate something like this from happening. They didn't consider how dangerous this could be for people of color. And so when I got there, cause I wasn't the first, I wasn't in the first group of people to get to the rotary, but soon upon getting to the rotary, I understood that no one was in control. There was no directive from any people of color there was no directive from anyone at all. There was not even a megaphone there to, to give orders or to make demands known. There was just people blocking the rotary, which as a tactic, I don't disagree with. I think that that could be very useful. But to my knowledge, the people that went over and did that were not black. They were not brown. They were not indigenous. And upon arriving, I tried and others tried in the crowd who do have more experience with events to give some directive to the white allies who did not understand that they had to protect people of color. I feel like too many people were there just chanting along and like doing it to feel good about themselves, not understanding the actual levels of of danger that they were putting uh, not only themselves, but especially people of color in that crowd in. Did you happen to see the reports of the Maine Association of Police accusing protesters in Portland of exhibiting, and I'm going to, this is a quote, the same bias in institutional racism present in the state's law enforcement agencies? 
So what are your thoughts on that and, and how in many places in America we've become almost a police state? I think it's interesting that they were willing to at least contend that they do have structural racism within their police department. And that's important that they are recognizing that for once, because typically they say, no, no, we don't have any structural racism here. So I think it's funny that they're trying to uh, falsely equate Black Lives Matter and other racial justice organizations with racism and mirroring their own internal racism. One of the things that needs to be understood is that People who are saying stop killing us are not being racist. People who are saying that the police force is ingrained with white supremacy and it's a colonial force aren't the same as those forces. I think that when understanding the history of police, one needs to understand that the police force began as a means for the white, rich, landowning class. They began as a forced to protect private property interests. And already knowing that this land is indigenous, the idea of private property in and of itself doesn't make any sense. It is based in violence. But in the South, private property meant black bodies. In the South, the police were started in order to capture runaway slaves. They were started to punish runaway slaves. And they were also started as a group to move into and clear away through murder and kidnapping of indigenous peoples. So the police force, for them to say that there is a similar level of racism or discrimination against the police department by those who they inflict and have a history based in inflicting violence on is just laughable. It's disgusting. It's disingenuous. They know it's disingenuous. And that kind of behavior needs to stop because that kind of behavior is what leads to the further dismissal of the charges of white supremacy and dismissal of the charges of racism and institutional and structural racism within the police department. Because what the police department represent is the hand of white supremacy. They are not the embodiment of it. They are the, the muscular arm that's held down against a marginalized person's throat. They are the enforcers of the laws that were written by rich white landowners during the foundation of this country, which was built on stolen land. And that needs to be understood. Their place within that supremacy needs to be understood. And they cannot try to hand wave this away as if they are not involved in supremacy, as if they don't have a problem with racism, because their history is birthed from that. And if the foundation of your institution is one based in white supremacy and racism, then you need to dig up that foundation. You need to tear that house down and build a new institution, a new framework in its place. What sort of tactics can an activist like you, who's a person of color, use to challenge the status quo of the police state when they can use violence and force against you? There's a lot of different tactics. There's a lot of different things being utilized right now. And many of them, we've seen the right wing and liberal media's join forces in this idea that looting is a negative aspect to protests and there's a difference between violence and and, uh, nonviolent protests. I will say that there is a multifaceted approach that needs to happen because this is the way that uh, civil rights have been gained historically. It has not been done through a pacifism. It has not been done through solely to the the actions of a type like Martin Luther King or solely to the accreditation of Gandhi. 
those figures and that level of pacifism is not the only part of this. And I think that our history in this country has been severely whitewashed if people believe that that is the case. When it comes to Martin Luther King Jr., in his later years, he was quoted as even saying, let us say boldly that if the violations of the law by the white man and the slums over the years were calculated and compared with the lawbreaking of a few days of riots, the hardened criminal would be the white man. So if we're looking at the collective history of violence within our communities, like who is more violent? The man who is going out and looting some food for his family during a global pandemic or a police officer who is shooting crowds with tear gas, a police officer who is unloading on a crowd with rubber bullets. I don't understand this idea that nonviolence is the, the only answer when the oppressor and those who have the control, those who have the, the ability to approve violence against our communities are the ones in control. We need to get organized and we need to get mobilized. There's a lot of great ways you can, you can do activism within your community. And it starts with reaching out to members in your community and seeing where they're at, what their needs are, building mutual aid networks in your communities, especially during the time of COVID. It's important to maintain a network of services to help people, to uplift people, to make sure people know that there are people there for them. We need to have awareness events. We need to have things like marches. We need to have public shows of support and force that can draw in more people. That is very important. We need to have education. We need to have accountability and transparency. And there's behind the scenes work and policy work that can be done. We need to be actively working with those who have the experience to be shifting and putting pressure on local officials and state officials to move forward with things like defunding the police, things like increasing funding for environmental protections. We need to hold these people accountable and it will never stop until until the revolution uh, comes is what I was about to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> until the revolution comes, right? I'm very curious about your interactions with Maine's white liberal activists who, I guess I would say their intentions are good, but their mm. follow through and execution, not so good. How do you actually talk yeah. to them? I, if I was in your position, I would have been pretty pissed and possibly lost my temper. Yeah. How does that work out for you personally? Yeah. So the thing is that you can't, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, in most cases, when an ally is doing some really bad stuff, uh, whenever you or exert that anger at them, you're seen as being the bad guy and you're vilified pretty quickly. So there's a lot of different ways to communicate these things. And there are allies out there with very, very good intentions. They're just trying to help the movement. They see right now as being very pivotal. They see themselves as being anti-racist. They see themselves as being allies and in solidarity with these movements. But what needs to be understood is that white allies job is not to take charge their job is not to lead discussions on racism. Their job is not to create rallies without the directive and the approval and leadership of black and indigenous peoples. White allies need to understand that their role and their complicity within white supremacy demotes them from any kind of organizational power within uh, fighting those structures. I've had instances of white allies like exercising their white fragility and feeling like they're the victims in the situation. I've had white allies come to me asking specifically what they can do better, how they fucked up, how they can change, what resources they can use. 
I think it's really important right now for white allies to educate themselves to do the reading because that experience of the, like the firsthand experience of that is not there. And so they have the privilege to be able to learn about racism secondhand through people who have been marginalized and oppressed. And there is a lit, there's so many books, there are so many resources for people to read and to take in that they don't need to be coming to a black person or, you know, any other person of color anytime they have a question about race. They don't need to be coming to, to their one black friend, their one indigenous friend to have those conversations. There's, there are so many books and resources that you need to educate yourself with. You need to stand in solidarity by giving up your power so that other people can step up into their power. That's something that's very important to keep in mind is that we can't have white people leading events or leading talks and discussions about racism. Though your take is very important and your solidarity is very important, it really is because you are the ones that, whose job and role it is to convince the people who are white, who don't understand. Your job is to educate yourself to become an advocate and a surrogate for racial discussions, but never should you feel like you are the one who is in power. You are the one who is in control of these conversations or these events or these rallies, protests, what have you. You need to know that your role is to give up your platform when it is needed. Your role is to educate those who are too far gone and too brainwashed to see that race was created as a means to justify and rationalize slavery. The white race didn't come about until the 17th century, and it was created specifically as a social construct to justify indigenous genocide and the slavery of black Africans stolen from their homeland. Whiteness did not exist before then, and so it's important that you understand that history. It's important that you educate yourself so that you can educate others. I get so pissed off when I hear you actually just talking about the white fragility, the, the victimhood. Mm -hmm of whites. For me, as someone who's been following the alt-right and Nazis for quite a while, that's dangerously yeah. close to the white supremacist, white genocide mm -hmm. theory, the replacement theory. And it's mind-boggling right. to me that a white person in America, a person of privilege. Now, of course, it's different mm -hmm. for our low-income white Americans, obviously, because oh, sure. we're talking about classism and, and capitalism. And I don't want to put you on the spot for a reading list. Is there a book like Revolution for White Dummies or something like that? What's a, what would you <laughs> recommend people to read? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, just starting off, Layla Saad's Me and White Supremacy is a great source book for white people who are trying to do better. Um, it goes through and discusses like different little workshops and like what you can do in your day to day to hold you and, your, and others around you accountable. Um, there are plenty of works uh, about colonization, like the author Franz Fanon, uh, spelled F-R-A-N-T-Z, last name Fanon, F-A-N-O-N. There's Ibrahim uh, Kendi. He has uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Like there's a lot of really good reading to be done. There are black women at the front of these movements. There are indigenous women at the front of these movements. There's like Asada Shakur. There's Angela Davis. There's many people who have experienced these things firsthand, who have a very eloquent and very beautiful way with words, who are able to pierce through, pierce through that whiteness and really put it in a way that it's easy to understand. It's easy to pass on that knowledge to others. I could give you, Crash, a reading list, and you could feel free to share that 
we'll post that in the show notes. That'll be very helpful for me and uh, the listeners as well. I'm really curious about your idealized version of modern America. What would that look like to you? Well, I mean, I I wouldn't call America <laughs> first and foremost. Like as 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 a native person, I think that my my take on the American colonial project is a lot different from what other groups of people have in mind. Fundamentally, there needs to be a shifting of focus away from the capitalist mode of production and economic uh, organization to one that is more traditional to the peoples of this land, one that is more communally based uh, in people having access to the things that they need. Things need to be planned and discussed, and all of our economic systems need to be formatted around that. As guests in America, as guests in this land, People who are in control, the businessman, the politician, they need to sit down and realize that they are still guests here. They need to realize that all of these things, when it comes to capitalism, when it comes to colonialism, are foreign to this land. These things are alien. They were created as a means to subjugate the majority of people to benefit the minority. And so what we need to do is we need to build a society that is based in the majority. It needs to be based in the abolition of structures that were placed there by those people intentionally. I think too often there's this idea that we need to fix the system. There's this idea that the systems are broken, but that's not the case. The systems are, are designed this way. They are working exactly the way that they were intended to. The reason why people are standing up right now against police violence, the reason why people are standing up against not having health care and not having education is because these things are there by design. There's a very small group of people in this country who control the majority of the wealth, the majority of the resources. They are able to not have to worry about their aunties or their uncles getting cancer because they have health care. They have the money and the resources to not have to worry about those things. They can send their kids to Ivy League schools and not have to worry about the cost of college. There's a very small group of people in this country who own almost everything. And it needs to be understood that we as individuals, we have the power to come together and reorganize our society in a way that benefits everyone. We need to have a communally-based system where workers, not their bosses, are in control of the means of production. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say the scary socialist words. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that people who have been pushing for workers' rights the longest, people who care about the working class Americans, are those who believe that those people are smart enough to be able to run their factories, not just work them tirelessly, not just work the farmlands tirelessly, but who are smart enough and understand well enough to be able to lead those things. We definitely need something that is more socialist-based if we wish to combat any of the injustices within our society, because capitalism was not built for us. It was built for a very small portion of people. And we need to start divesting from capitalism and investing more in our communities. It almost sounds like you're talking about deconstructing the institution rather than burning it down. Like I said earlier, this is multifaceted. There are uh, reformations that can be applied that work as means to reduce harm. But at the same time, there is revolutionary power that is very necessary and very needed. One or the other on its own, I don't believe will be successful. It needs to be in conjunction. I think that reform is important because it can reduce the harm of those who are the most marginalized. But the issue with reform is that it never seeks to undo those systems outright. That's something that's very important to know. I think that there's a place and a time for either one of those tactics. 
Like when we're talking about the abolition of the police force, what needs to happen is there needs to be a divestment from the police. There needs to be a complete like defunding of those police departments. But then the next question is, where is that money going? Where are those resources going? Are they going back into the community in a way that is meaningful? Or are they just being given to sitting officials who want a bigger paycheck? We seek to divest entirely from the police department and for those funds to be shifted into social services for people who are specialized in knowing how to de-escalate scenarios, people who are specialized in being detectives. There's no reason why a police officer has 10 different jobs. They are medical response. They are social services people. They are the people who enforce traffic laws. They are the people who show up to events and riots. There's too many things that they're doing and they're spread so thin with less training and less required schooling than a barber is. That needs to be understood that these people aren't capable of, of doing all of this work. And so what we need is a divestment and an investment in our communities directly. That could look like reform to some people, but the end goal is revolutionaryism. Because what the alternative is, is like you said, kind of burning down things or burning down the systems and the structures. Like just because those structures are outright burnt down or removed doesn't mean that the work is done because what needs to happen is the building of what is replacing that needs to already be happening because otherwise the house is burnt down and there's nowhere to sleep. I'm curious about the response from other members of the Penobscot Nation towards your politics, towards your activism. Do you ever experience any backlash for your political views? I don't think so. I feel like a lot of people within my nation, within indigenous nations themselves, like understand that the colonial authority and the powers that be, the governor, Janet Mills, any, any governor that has existed previously, whether that be Paula Page or Baldacci, like they have not stood with us. They don't care about us. They don't recognize our sovereignty. They don't recognize um, their place as guests here. And so a lot of indigenous people that I have spoken with, regardless of their politics, whether they be left or right wing, they still have that shared understanding that these people are not here to help us and work with us in a way that is respectful or in a way that is uplifting and actually listening to what we, ha we have to say and actually giving us the, the leadership and the directive to help empower our communities. There have been instances where I've been seen as being too radical, but I mean, after short conversations of just clarifying my points and people not taking things out of context, those are de-escalated real quick. I don't think that we can really move forward with the same level of liberalism that we have been seeing for the past however long. I don't see Joe Biden or any other Democratic politician getting elected as being the end of, of any, kind of, um, any kind of injustice against us. And I know that many Penobscot also feel that way, that it's not about Democrat and Republican. It's, it's, it's a bipartisan effort to oppress us, and that's well understood. Let's change the topic to COVID-19. First of all, what's your response mm -hmm. to the numbers that more than a quarter of the COVID-19 mm -hmm. related deaths in Maine are people of color and people of color in Maine are 20 times as likely to contract the virus? I think that this is not surprising. I think that it also needs to be said that only about 5% of Maine, less than 5% of Maine are people of color. And so right out the gate, that is a gross overrepresentation of nearly 22%. And it disgusts me, but it's something that I'm not surprised by. Again, when I was talking about environmental racism, 
COVID itself needs to be understood as being a part of that. Global pandemics are birthed out of this in a lot of different ways. And it's something that is very troubling. I, I don't know if those numbers are nationally or if those are just within the state of Maine, but when seeing how the Navajo Nation is, is dealing with COVID right now and how hard the community's been hit, the reason why none of this is surprising is because in these communities, people lack access to basic fundamental needs. There's an absurd amount of people in the Navajo Nation who don't have access to running water, who have to drive out of town like for an hour to go get water, people who don't have access to electricity. Basic fundamental needs are not met. And the federal and state governments have not done enough to help these communities. And they've done everything in their power to strip back protections for these communities. Like, I am not surprised at all. People of color often work in jobs that are deemed essential. We're the people who are making food. We're the people who are at the, on the front lines in the medical facilities. Like, we are in dangerous environments constantly. And it's really sad to see and disgusting. And it needs to be addressed by those who are sitting in power currently. The Democratic and liberal officials need to be held accountable. They, they need to own that. They need to say, okay, why is this happening? Why don't we have anything to protect communities of color? Why are we being against COVID relief? Why are we voting against these things? Why are we not for rent freezes? Why are we not for X, Y, Z? You know, why as a liberal have I not supported more funding to the homeless shelter? Why have I not supported drug reform programs, which people of color get more use out of? Why is it that all of these things continue to happen and they, they own none of it? None of these sitting politicians are willing to take ownership of the things that they have helped create and their complicity within this. What sort of health care is there on the res right now for your family and friends? We have a clinic. I don't know how many people are staffed there. It's not adequately funded to the degree that if we were to get COVID cases, those people would be, I believe, sent to Northern Light Hospital. We just have that clinic that runs from nine to five every day. They've been doing amazing work. They have been giving like updates. They have been helping and coordinating with delivering supplies. The governmental response from tribal government has been excellent. And that is evidenced by the fact that we have only seen a couple of COVID cases in the Penobscot tribe. And those people have been those who don't live on reservation. They live off reservation. So the, the healthcare that we have provided to us is not the best. It's not something that I would say like is, is adequately designed to help respond to a crisis of this sort. And I think that we definitely need more funding for our healthcare workers and for bigger facilities or staff. But I do want to say that the tribe has done a really excellent job at containing COVID and keeping it off the res. Well, that's refreshing to hear. Have you heard from fellow tribal members about assistance from the federal government? Did everyone get a stimulus check? Or are people now getting the unemployment benefits from the state and the feds? Yeah, so people are, are getting the, uh, the unemployment, the bonus from the CARES Act, uh, the $600 additional to unemployment. Uh, a lot of folks got the, the Trump check of $1,200. Uh, but in terms of the actual stimulus package that was offered up to tribes that I think it was $8 billion, I might be wrong on that number, but I don't know the level to which it has been able to flow into our community and where that money is being allocated. But there hasn't been any sort of help outside of that, to my knowledge. What's your COVID experience been like? I work as, as an event coordinator and a volunteer coordinator. 
I'm currently unemployed. I've been laid off. And during this time, I have been taking care of my mother, who is someone who is directly impacted by COVID and somebody who is disabled. And so I've been doing my best to, to keep her safe. I immediately had to shift focus to doing damage control for the main state government in uh, setting up mutual aid response networks, in getting access to food and medicines for people who are in need of them. I also work for a Narcan distribution pop-up exchange where we do service the community and help people who are struggling with opioid addiction, people who are living in recovery. There's a lot of different things that kind of got shifted into overdrive when COVID hit. Like I was saying a minute ago that there is an exposure of all the flaws within capitalism right now and an exposure in the flaws in the way that we've organized our communities. It was like everything just kind of hit all at once. We really realized that the local governments weren't doing enough fast enough to help people who are in need. It was all up to like the local activist community, to local organizers and people who worked for different nonprofit organizations to really take the reins because no one, no one was driving at that point. The main state government was still in this kind of bewildered state of not really knowing how to respond. And we were on the front lines helping people get access to food, helping people with drop-offs, helping uh, the homeless with dropping off of, of supplies for them, for um, Narcan, for those who are struggling with addiction. Like we, we've been doing the work that should have been done by the politicians and should have been done by the local leaders quicker and more effective than we were able to, to do this. It shouldn't be up to us to, to do this. It's shocking and kind of, it's kind of gross to see the, the lack of, of directive and response from a lot of local leaders and a lot of, like even the, even the governor herself, honestly. I, I will say that she did do better than, than many governors within this nation, but at the end of the day, I, I still don't feel like it was enough. There's been too many deaths, even within the state of Maine. And even though we gotten a handle on it way better than some others, it, it's still too many. There's never, there's never an amount that would be acceptable. The further construction of mutual aid networks in this time of crisis mm -hmm. has been a beacon almost of showing how yeah. the community is adaptive. And we do care about our fellow residents mm -hmm. around here. So I'm heartened by that. I said earlier in this interview that, that geez, this conversation is making me depressed. And it's really, I don't know if it's making me <laughs> depressed or not. I, now that I'm thinking about it, and there's going to be a lot for me to unpack in my head afterwards, thinking about the things that you've said. So thank you. But does all this action on the street and the response of people of color coupled with the response of your white allies, is this making you hopeful? Yeah, I mean, the reason why I and many others fight is because we're driven by a vision of the society that we know is accomplishable and we know is actionable by the people in that society. We, we can see how strong and how empowered we are as individuals, how smart we are, and we know that we can do better than the people who sit with all of the power and all of the authority. And so there is definitely a layer of hope there. It can be very disheartening and it's very hard. And I personally am very pessimistic as a person, but without that hope for, for that vision, that shared collective vision of what the world could be, I don't know, it just wouldn't be worth it. Like there, there is that hope there for sure. Like you said, it, it was a shining light to see how quickly people who never had community organizing experience before like how quickly they were able to adapt and understand, okay, no, I need to get involved. I need to help people who need access to, to whatever. It's really good to see. And 
especially seeing all of these things happen nationally, seeing that all 50 states supported these national events. Like there, there have been demonstrations in every state. There have been demonstrations in over 18 countries internationally. It's just, it's amazing to see this kind of level of unity and solidarity happening and it needs to happen. And there does need to be a global response because like, I just want to make clear that racism and white supremacy is not just an American issue. It's a global issue and that needs to be addressed for sure. There are people in most countries who would like to live in the Republic of the United States or the Dominion of Canada where that good Olga Kohl is sold. The citizens of our free countries are the envy of many people elsewhere because of the personal freedom which we have enjoyed. Why then doesn't every country adopt a form of free government? One answer is that unfortunately there are people and parties in many nations who are so greedy for power that they will sacrifice the freedom of their fellow countrymen to obtain power for themselves. History, even recent history, is replete with such instances. That is why the citizens of the Republic of the United States and the Dominion of Canada must be careful to recognize at its very beginning any movement to steal or limit their freedom. That is not always easy. The man who would enslave a free people doesn't begin by saying, now I'm going to be your dictator. Instead, he probably will claim that he is a devoted supporter of personal freedom. But all the while, he will support policies that weaken and undermine personal freedom. Such a man will deny any totalitarian aims. But free citizens must not be deceived by such denials. Apparently, it is a cardinal principle of every sincere totalitarian that he is justified in lying, if such lies will advance his plans. In these times, no public figure and no party or organization supporting such a person can be accepted without careful consideration. Every public figure and organization must be carefully scrutinized. And if their real aims are to limit or to destroy our freedom as individuals, they must be opposed and defeated. I'm very grateful to Lakota Sanborn for his insightful and thought-provoking ideas. And also, thanks to him, we have a starter pack reading list for white people like me, who, as he so eloquently put it, quote, have the privilege of learning about racism secondhand by reading. I'm going to put his book suggestions in this show's show notes, and I think I'm going to start with the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. So again, thanks to Lakota. We want to hear your pandemic stories. Also, any tips on Nazi scum and other evildoers? Drop me a line at crash at crashberry.com or find me on social media. Until next time, viva la revolution.